Today on Grub Stakers, we're going to talk to you about modern monetary theory, why the rent is too damn high, and a woke CEO at Goldman Sachs who is enabling genocide. So buckle up, because it's coming for you now. I think we disproportionately stop whites too much. I taught those kids lessons on product development and marketing, and they taught me what it was like growing up feeling targeted for your race. I am proud to be gay. I am proud to be a Republican. You know, I went to a tough school in Queens, and they used to beat up the little Jewish boys. You know, I love having the support of real billionaires. Hello, hello, and welcome to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. Sean P. McCarthy here, joined as always by my friends... Andy Palmer. Yogi Polywell. Steve Jeffries. And uh, we got a special episode for you today. Uh, a special episode we are recording for the first time in Yogi's brand new apartment. Uh, it's beautiful. Our COINTELPRO checks finally cashed. <laughs> Our work discrediting and disgracing and creating internal divisions in the left. I am have... so glad we held back on Soros. <laughs> <laughs> and, and didn't reveal the truth about Pizza Exactly. Day. Well, the check's cleared. That's all I care about. <laughs> it has bought us this beautiful uh, 30th floor view of Brooklyn. The kind of view that you really only get uh, when your father helped overthrow a Latin American government, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and we're we're here, we're taking it all in, and we're excited to be uh, to be back with you, and um, and so we've done this podcast about billionaires for a, for a little while, and we're taking a bit of a different tact this episode, and that we've covered billionaires, but we should also probably talk about what money actually is and, and these kinds of things. And um, uh, Stephen was just recently at a uh, Modern Monetary Theory Conference, the MMT. And uh, so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then after that... You see, with all these like apartment moves, like I'm moving in with Steven in mm-hmm. a week, um, we thought it would be appropriate to address how the rent <laughs> is too damn high. <laughs> rent is too damn high. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And why uh, the rent is too damn high. Are you mm-hmm. trying to say something? Uh, <laughs> And the and the fact that none of us can uh, live alone uh, without uh, our dad making Excel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah. seems about fair. But when he does, why wouldn't you? Well, no, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying you shouldn't. My, my dad only made PowerPoint, so I, I, have to, I have to live with roommates. What if it came out that the rent is too high guy was actually a landlord? <laughs> the damning political scandal of the century. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so uh, Steve will talk about um, we'll talk about modern monetary theory and uh, his experience at the conference and uh, and all these kinds of uh, important questions uh, and, and just left economics in general or economics in general if you prefer. Um, and then also once we get through that, uh, I basically I found three articles in uh, Vanity Fair all by the same author William Cohen. Uh, where three different headlines where he refers to the new CEO of Goldman Sachs as woke. And I almost had a brain hemorrhage reading that today. 
So I thought after we do a bit of a modern monetary theory discussion, we'll do a article excerpt analysis series, which is unrelated to any other segment on any other popular podcast. Uh, but I will just I will read a couple excerpts from these uh, new woke Goldman Sachs CEO articles. Uh, and then we'll, we'll comment on them so you can hear about... Uh, what the fuck is up with the lexicon? Goldman yes. Sachs woke? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, it makes no sense. Merrill right. Lynch's Bay? Like, exactly. what, 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 at what point is the new age lexicon going to stop uh, proliferating uh, financial journalism? Right. As soon as I heard that, I like Goldman Sachs woke, I just started imagining like a fraudulent foreclosure notice covered with clap emojis. <laughs> <laughs> Give your house to banks. This inflation is not supreme enough. <laughs> London whale magic or something. <laughs> um, but so we'll get to that, and then um, and uh, we 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 don't mention it enough on this podcast. But Steve uh, Jeffries, our, our esteemed co-host, is uh, has a master's degree in economics, so he actually knows things. And uh, I think this episode would be a. Uh, an exciting opportunity for us to kind of go through um, uh, economics 101 in a sense. And, and why uh, the rent is too damn high. Exactly. And Sweet. it all gets back to why the rent is too damn high. But um, so I guess, Steve, uh, first of all, if you could just give a brief explainer of modern monetary theory, and then we'll go into more depth shortly, and then we can get a, get to the conference. Sure. Well, uh, very briefly, MMT, modern monetary theory is builds upon a concept that there are certain countries that have a fiat currency and that fiat currency is not backed by any other currency or another commodity. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it has, it's not on a fixed exchange rate or anything. It's just floating. Mm -hmm. And that's opposed to like gold backed currency or currency backed. As opposed to like a a country that runs a currency board or it's gold backed or something like that. Or Mm -hmm. backed by the dollar. (laughs) Yeah. Or dollarized. Yeah. 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 So the U.S., Japan, U.K., and in fact, most places in the world operate under this type of system. So -hmm. they call it modern monetary theory. Um, And there are some implications for that that fact. Um, One is that they budget deficits and uh, federal budget deficits and national debt don't mean the same thing that you hear in uh, mainstream economics textbooks. They're the same as uh, personal credit card debt, right? (laughs) Like right. You like you and I have hard budget constraints in our spending that we have to meet because we are only the users of a currency, whereas mm-hmm. the federal government is not like a household at all. It has it's the currency issuer, right. so they make that distinction because they they want to say that like the only reason any of us have U.S. dollars is because uh, at some point the state spent out more than it taxed away. Right. And so like how is you might be asking, like, all right, if you if they have like essentially unlimited dollars to spend out, how does it retain its value? So, monetary mon- modern monetary people say that taxes drive money. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, there's that is to say, we all have a tax obligation imposed by the state, mm-hmm. and or if not taxes, then fines and fees that are only payable in the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. So, like those three things. The fact that you can only pay them in U.S. dollars gives you a reason to need the currency. Right. Yeah, they didn't and, like when I tried to throw my feces at them for this public disorder uh, ticket. Yeah, you can go out and get as much Bitcoin as you want, but ult- if, ultimately you'll have to convert it back in the U.S. dollars in order to pay your taxes. Hmm. And a lot of this, um, a lot of the misconceptions about money seem to stem from the um, early history of money that... Um, 
we were, we were talking to on our own off mic before this, but like it, some, some of it's, um, there's a big misconception about money, uh, which is covered in David Graeber's book, uh, debt, the first 5,000 years, which is, and we're trying to have him on. Yes. I messaged him on face <laughs> or on Twitter. He did not reply. Steve's on. Let's not forget. Huh? We're also trying to get Steve's on to come on the podcast. Uh, David Graeber's bay. Okay. Point so, of clarification. Before you start thinking Andy is smart, he listened to the audio book. He didn't read it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm functionally. If don't you, don't if medium you, shame. <laughs> if you follow me on Twitter, you know, I'm functionally illiterate. Um, I just kind of like mash buttons and autocorrect does the work. So, uh, Basically, there, there's um, this long-standing um, myth, essentially, or fantasy that I'd bought into um, that early pre-monetary economies were barter-based, mm-hmm. that people would just exchange one item for another, you know, a chicken for a bag of corn or whatever. You got bread, I got a duck, let's make something happen. Yeah. Wumpum for slaves. I mean, I do yeah. that, but most people wouldn't. <laughs> And it, it turns out that anthropolo- er, an- anthropologists haven't been able to find a, a single... Oh, well, that's never been the case. That's pretty much mm-hmm. never been the case. Mm-hmm. They find like very small exceptions, but the only sure. time that barter actually comes up in um, a society is when a monetary society collapses and money no longer has value, such oh, as really? post-Soviet Union Russia. They huh. briefly switched to a uh, barter right. society because everything collapsed. Um, but so... I, I read Graeber's book Debt Five Thousand Years, Ooh. and it was my uh, that was kind of my entry point into monetary theory. Um, I had already kind of heard about the theory, but like it didn't it wasn't really driven home until I read that book. And yeah. I was wondering, like, huh, this doesn't seem very modern at all. Actually, there are examples of like Sumerian debt crises. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And like, uh, very, they had very sophisticated monetary systems just thousands to, of years ago. Just to go back to uh, the barter system in post-Soviet Russia, I believe that was based around uh, state assets for not being killed by the mafia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and it was it basically he um, uh, possesses a new um, framework, which is that money instead of replacing barter. Uh, in terms of exchange, which Adam Smith kind of invented out of whole cloth Mm -hmm. um, based on how things were understood at the time he was writing. Uh, What really happened is that basically people would in, in say gift based economies um, or, you know, kind of centrally community governed economies like in um, early native American economies or pre Columbian and native American economies. um, They eventually some, places got to the point where you know someone would loan someone something and that would incur a debt and they needed a way to keep track of debts mm-hmm. and so that kind of money kind of arose as a way of keeping track of debts right, and ultimately right. that shaped the growth of money which was not through direct exchange per se but because of debt and money mm-hmm. is uh essentially an iou mm-hmm. um that ultimately uh came to be closely associated with governments until it kind of became completely associated with governments mm-hmm. so we can trace the rise of jeff bezos to tobacco debts basically <laughs> <laughs> um but so and i guess like the the uh my big takeaway from mmt modern monetary theory is essentially and please steve correct me if i'm wrong here is that inflation is the only real constriction on government spending Essentially, like, if spending is not inflationary, then, you know, if the debt is $12 trillion, it doesn't matter. It's completely abstract. Right. 
And so essentially, like, if inflation is the only uh, constraint on monetary policy, then um, there's uh, lots of programs we could pursue, such as job guarantee, that uh, are not necessarily going to create inflation in our current environment. And we can circle back around to that, but I did just want to get your after-action report on the MMT conference. Could you just explain for our listeners um, what the MMT conference was? I know it's the second annual one. Uh, what you saw there, these kinds of things. So, yeah, it was the second international modern monetary conference, which mm-hmm. for all our Marxist fans is like not celebrating the second international <laughs> as it applies to modern monetary <laughs> theory. Uh, it was a three-day conference just this past Friday through Sunday. I went to all every day. Mm-hmm. Um, it every, like every single luminary from the MMT world and all the activists and like uh, there were about four hundred people there. Mm-hmm. They were there. In fact, when we were all in one hall in in the new school, I was like, "Wow! If they dropped the bomb here, MMT would be finished <laughs> as, a, as a movement. There'd just be nothing." Well, left. let's not broadcast that out to. Uh, <laughs> Listeners, I think the only <laughs> reason that didn't happen is just disorganization in the Trump White House. Yeah, they're, they're, they're scheduling mishaps, so the bomb didn't. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So the like the first day, uh, uh, Stephanie Kelton, one of the main MMT economists, who was the advisor to Bernie Sanders on his campaign, spoke. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who had done important work on the job, federal job guarantee, which is often just linked with MMT, spoke. Mm-hmm. Second day, I had some great workshops. Um, I participated in three of them. Um, I loved it because it was like, it was linking kind of this this abstract sort of nerdy topics of MMT with activists and organizers. Right. And okay. So like, how can we drive this movement forward? Okay. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of like just kind of practical political questions. So was it a success? They, one of the workshops, they teach you how to work the printing press. <laughs> you just have to do that all day. Was it a success? Uh, yeah, I think it was a success. How to counterfeit. <laughs> if the government's not going to print money, here's how you can. <laughs> Gorilla MMT. Yeah. Put but trillions of counterfeit dollars into circulation. But the, uh, the third component was uh, there's a lot of media there. Hmm. Like oh, okay. Joe Weisenthal was just walking around. He's what business? Oh no, he's Bloomberg, Bloomberg reporter. Yeah, he's he's been MMT friendly for a while, and I saw him there. Um, Okay, so let's let's take a a step back. So, um, the biggest criticism that you hear when people start talking about MMT is they'll immediately go to 1930s Germany and talk about inflation, uh, or 1920s Germany, where there was hyperinflation. um, There's the you know, probably semi-apocryphal stories of people buying a loaf of bread with a barrel of uh, wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. So MMT um, relies on a charismatic leader to solve <laughs> these problems, right? <laughs> so very distinct facial choices. <laughs> let's first let's first look at what is inflation, mm-hmm. and then what causes inflation. Like, what are the underlying mm-hmm. causes of inflation? And then once we once we've established that, then we can, I think maybe show how we can address these concerns and how many of the concerns about inflation are overblown. So like what is inflation and uh, how is it, how is it measured? Mm-hmm. Well, you hear all the stories about Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe or now Venezuela, which we'll get back to, but yeah, yes. like um, inflation just simply because it's a, it's a general rise in prices. Mm-hmm. Um, you could print all the money in the world, the MMT sometimes says, but if it's not getting spent, there's no inflation. Mm-hmm. Right. Hmm. So how our MMT is just looking at kind of what they call the biophysical constraints 
of the economy. So the real resources, the people, the factories, all that stuff. And looking along supply chains, um, it finds that um, inflationary pressure on the supply side is typically where you find inflation. It's not about consumers suddenly buying a lot more of particular consumer goods and bidding the prices up mm-hmm. so much as it is finding rigidities in the supply chain where you can't get enough shit to make goods and services. So it's a cost of production issue. Yeah, it's a co- yeah. It's a cost push rather than demand pull. Can you put it in uh. terms of a pizzeria operating? Yes, I can. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say it was a demand pull inflation. So more and more people are going to a particular pizzeria or maybe just pizzerias in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's, I don't even know why that would happen. But There's a pizza boom going there's on. There's a pizza boom. Let's say, there's a pizza uh, bubble. Let's say people haven't figured out that artichokes are a disgusting thing to put on pizzas. Yeah. And that uh, when let's you do, do art- that, yeah, the pizzas pizza. fall apart and it's uh, nonsense. I don't know. I think some people realize that most people aren't bitches <laughs> and can handle a heavy slice of pie, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's right? let's pretend that John Podesta was not exposed <laughs> and pizza restaurants are incredibly popular with lines out the door. <laughs> yeah. So you have like Podesta level pizza inflation going on. Um, so people want more of it. The pizzeria would like to supply them all with pizza at maybe the same or maybe higher prices. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets enough stores to do that. It gains some market power. Mm-hmm. Prices go up because it says, I have all this control over the new this newly inflated pizza economy. And yeah, so you see a, pri- a rise in prices. Right. Because people don't have a choice to go elsewhere or something like that. Yes, the, the pizza so, market's yeah. cornered. So. Right, the yeah. owners they raise prices the pizza is market. this idea that all so this that, demand is coming in, so they raise prices. Yeah. yeah, so that would be an example of demand-led inflation. On the supply side, which empirically we find more likely to be the case often. Well, also in this uh, pizza case, because you have an effective monopoly right. in this yeah. one example. Yeah. So in the other case, in the Wait a minute, Andy. Cost, are you implying to me that economic models are not always accurate and reflective <laughs> of the real world? You get it. Sorry. <laughs> Go on, Steve. Uh, in the other more, more likely case of cost push inflation, um, the demand for pizzas is about the same. But the place where they make the pizza ingredients has a political instability. And suddenly their ability to produce those things is very limited. A work coup, if you will. Yeah. Like uh, for pasta sauce or something. Yes, of course. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So that eventually makes its way up the the supply chain back to the pizzeria. The pizza inflation that followed the takeover of the black shirts in Italy in the 1920s. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or the, or workers go on strike for better conditions. Yeah, yeah. now would this and other al- other pizzerias have to fill in that gap, but they can't really do it because they don't have the productive capacity. One thing, uh, one thing I've heard there there have been several debates about the United States in the seventies because there was right something of a mild inflationary crisis. Um, it's very well, fun to blame it on Jimmy Carter, uh-huh. uh, and so I do, and uh, so. Besides the fact that it was entirely Jimmy Carter's fault, uh, it looks like uh, much of that had to do with um, oil prices and the Saudi oil embargo that almost triggered a United States invasion of Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. Um, But then also you have this other side of it where um, the central bank, which has in their um, statement of purpose or whatever it is, 
um, they have two targets, which is um, employment and inflation, or two two things they control. Um, so also in the 1970s, Paul Volcker, under Jimmy Carter, said that in order to get inflation under control, um, Americans had to be willing to lower their own standard of living hmm. uh, by basically what became known as the Volcker shock, where mm-hmm. he just jacked up um, interest prices and yeah, kind of crashed the economy for a minute to keep inflation under control but is is the is the um essentially in the pizza example that they would say one slice per two people instead of one slice per one person i guess yeah but then also is is it a fair assessment that uh inflation was driven largely by the saudi oil crisis or uh i mean or at least that plus several factors similar to that as opposed to jimmy carter um well, well, being just, willing to negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's there's that. And, like, I do think this stagflation story is very important because, essentially, that's marked as the start of the neoliberal era. Right. The 79, 80 uh, transition from New Deal liberalism to modern uh, neoliberalism. Um, but just, uh, uh, and Steve would know more about this, but one thing I did look up, and essentially, I did a bit of research on stagflation, and the general mainstream consensus uh, mainstream economics, whatever, is that uh, spending on the um, uh, Vietnam War and the Great Society was creating minor inflationary pressure on the U.S. economy to the point where Nixon in 1971 took us off the gold standard. And then in 1973-74, you had the um, oil embargoes that Andy mentioned. And then 79-80, you had both the Iran Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War, which was another oil shock. So stagflation, as far as I can tell, really emerged out of um, these oil shocks. Um, but now, there, there was the, arguably some minor amount of inflation before that. And now, when you say inflationary pressure from uh, the Great Society and uh, the Vietnam War, how does that fit into our model of pizzas, um, or pizzas, or just in general? How, how does that fit into our model of inflation that we've discussed? Well, well that's already. what Steve like, is here for. I, I would take like basically all the phenomenon you mentioned mm-hmm. and say is it was almost everywhere a supply-led phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, so in like terms Volcker's, of the, Volcker's response to U.S. consumers to basically spend less mm-hmm. was wrong-headed. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, people were basically <laughs> demanding what they would always demand. Right, right, yeah. right. But we have these, you know, these supply chain rigidities from going all the way back to oil. Right. That we're suddenly having to deal with because of all the political instability. Mm-hmm. And how did, do you know how Vietnam played into this? And um, so it's okay if you haven't, like, studied that particular instance. Uh, I mean, that was, yeah, that's another cause put forward for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you do you know the mechanism or? Well, you need a lot of oil to wage war. Oh, okay. So it, it came down to oil that eventually came, that you would trace back to. Yeah. Saudi also Arabia. during the 70s. Other inputs from the South, from Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Like oh, oh, that, and, yeah. oh, okay. So that would also increase Cars. the uh, supply side prices. Do you think uh, inflation was caused by uh, the governmental decision to, instead of putting gasoline in cars, drop it over the countryside <laughs> of Southeast Asia? <laughs> and please frame uh, that in terms of Jimmy Carter being a pussy. And pizza shops. <laughs> and uh, frame it as a question as well. Yeah. But so essentially, like, and I think that's relevant because essentially you see this sometimes, and I think you will see it again, is the conservative argument is that these Lyndon Johnson Great Society poverty programs in the Vietnam War and government spending created inflationary pressure, whereas the MMT Combined argument... Jimmy Carter not standing up to the yes. Soviet Union and Iran. The other argument is that it's a supply issue. But... Um, uh, yes, and just a couple statistics from this time. So we mentioned the two big oil shocks are really what caused stagflation, which to define that term is essentially um, 
no economic growth and inflation, which mm-hmm. is before this time, traditional uh, Keynesianism from John Maynard Keynes's school of thought predicted that um, uh, when unemployment went up, inflation would go down, yeah. and then stagflation kind of proved, yeah. And so, like, up, up until that time, generally, the democratic policy, economic policy teams favored, like, aggregate demand management techniques. So, like, uh, you run a budget deficit in order to build roads, bridges, or something like that, mm-hmm. or direct job creation programs, like in the... 30s and 40s mm-hmm. with like the WPA and the CCC. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So that changed after the stagflation crisis because there's kind of a crisis in economic thought about what to do about like, why do we have both basically? Why do we have a recession and inflation? Because usually we thought they were like diametrically opposed. Hmm. Like either you have inflation or you have unemployment. Right. Mm. Yeah. And the sort of the, that led an opening for a group of economists called the monetarists to basically advise the Fed on how they sh- the Federal Reserve on how they should try to control inflation better by controlling the money supply. Milton Friedman was like, uh, have you thought about killing the Democrats? <laughs> <laughs> Throwing them out of helicopters. <laughs> yeah. So have you considered a coup? Is that <laughs> But yes, uh, as as we Steve- have fighter jets, those could bomb Congress. As Steve mentioned, uh, Milton Friedman was probably the most famous of the monetarists, and uh, because Paul Volcker, in uh, jacking interest rates up to about 20% at their peak, uh, managed to uh, tame inflation while also causing a recession that put unemployment up to 10%, uh, he managed to tame inflation for the, until now, I mean, it hasn't really been seen again in the United States. Um, And so this was like, this became the real mainstream triumph of Milton Friedman and monetarism, which is this idea that you can control inflation and also control recessions and business cycles by just managing the money supply. But what they found out, I think, uh, the the other part of that story that doesn't get told nearly as much Mm -hmm. is um, when they were, you know, you have a bunch of monetarists advising the Federal Reserve now. Mm -hmm. So they say you need like bank lending bank credit is one part of the monetary supply mm-hmm. and the federal reserve controls interest rates or it did up until that time and let they controlled it. It shows an interest rate they wanted and they let the money supply be wherever it needs to be in order to support that interest rate. Mm-hmm. So they're all, all, all day long. The federal reserve is buying and selling treasury securities in order to make, to achieve that target basically mm-hmm. for short term interest rates. So the monitor said, no, actually, you should invert that and you should try and maintain a certain level of money supply. And And then the interest rate should be wherever it needs to be to support that. And when you say buying and selling treasury securities, uh, that basically means buying and selling uh, bonds that are essentially uh, there's a promise that they will be repaid, essentially backed up by both the treasury and uh, I guess more or less United States force. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, pretty yeah. much. But put it in terms of a pizza restaurant. Yes. <laughs> yes. Our listeners uh, consume meat. I don't know if I can do that <laughs> at this point. But the pizza, I think the pizzeria has served its purpose analytically. <laughs> yeah. And, but, well, just yeah. a couple other statistics. Did you know that uh, pizza restaurants now, they don't make their money from pizza, but from selling loans to buy the pizza? Oh, really? <laughs> They're pizza bag security. <laughs> 
Um, but just a couple illustrative uh, statistics from this stagflation period. Inflation in the United States peaked at about 14.8% in 1980. It, it averaged 12.4% in 1980. So it is interesting, like, when we talk about terrible inflation in the United States, I mean, that's really nothing globally. Right. And, you, and you just looked it up that the, the actual definition of hyperinflation is yes. 50% for per one, month. For one month yeah. average. Wow. So, so we didn't, it's, it's literally, you can't even call it hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. So. And uh, and then the other two uh, phenomenon from that time are both the Phillips curve, again, is this kind of, let's say, Keynesian idea that unemployment and inflation move in opposite directions. And then there's the uh, non-accelerating rate of unemployment, which is a concept we are still uh, stuck with, which yeah. is the idea that below a certain point, unemployment, the, if the unemployment rate goes below, most people say 5 or 6%. It'll create inflation, but clearly we're already at like 3.8, and we don't see it. And so. the assumption, the underlying assumption of that is also that inflation is demand created. Is that right? There, yeah, there's like a heavy emphasis on like, oh no, people are incomes are rising too too fast, or and their so they'll wealth spend is more increasing, money. so they'll spend more money, and okay. they'll create problems in the you know. Mm-hmm. There's uh, there's like the I want to go back to the Phillips curve because mm-hmm. that was kind of. Uh, I don't remember for sure, but I think the Phillips curve... That's a curve was, with four sides instead of two, right? <laughs> it was a... I think it was first published in late 40s, early 50s mm-hmm. by an Australian economist. And they had like a really long sort of gestation period before the rest of economic thought in the U.S. caught on to it. Really? Mm-hmm. And eventually it was put into practice as the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Mm-hmm. Try to say that. Three times <laughs> at, at the Federal Reserve. So you, it's basically the Phillips curve says there's a trade off between unemployment and inflation. Mm-hmm. So, like, on, on the one hand, you could have very high inflation but low un- unemployment, or mm-hmm. vice versa. And it just kind of smoothly transitions from that. It's the curve. And Nehru is an application of that theory for the Federal Reserve, saying that they need to. They need to estimate where they can safely keep inflation. Well, first of all, they need to assume that they can control inflation. Mm-hmm. And then after they make that assumption, they need to assume that there's a rate, there's a non-inflationary rate of unemployment where you can just keep things and keep the machine running smoothly. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I guess people will make the argument uh, also equivalently that if uh, employment gets you know to a certain level under 5%, that uh, eventually, by the supply and demand of the workforce, uh, wages will go up, which will um, force employers to then have to, you know, pay employees more mm-hmm. um, to uh, basically compensate for that. Which, you know, is kind of shown to be a uh, bullshit because uh, we have almost full employment and wages aren't going up because they're just able to manipulate it that way. Um, but the argument is that then when wages go up, that creates a corresponding increase in um, prices on the supply side because they're paying, putting more money into labor, mm-hmm. um, and that would cause inflation. So uh, why is that a crock of horseshit? <laughs> well, inflation is really dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. So there are lots of second-order effects mm-hmm. that would come out of um, a general rise in incomes for consumers. So it wouldn't just be if everyone in your neighborhood is suddenly making more and you're a business owner, you Mm -hmm. might start thinking about investing in, say, another pizzeria. 
just to get back to that. Mm-hmm. Of course. And not. in order to meet their demand, and so you'd have you'd have supply effects, and that you could suddenly, uh, hopefully, service all of their extra demand for pizzas as so they're going out to eat more, right, or something like that. So basically, it's so they invest. I mean, more high, like higher income, higher income could lead to higher investment. Because everyone's getting more in money, your so there's, there's more to money that demand that's able to invest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And like wealthier people are saved more of their income than than poorer people, right? Mm-hmm. If you give a dollar to someone making twenty thousand, they're more likely to spend it than someone making a million. Mm-hmm. So there would be like investment choices made by the wealthy people that would have other effects on asset prices. Mm. So all that's to say, it's really complex, and to have like <laughs> a linear, you can't have like a linear sort of thought process when it comes to inflation is there anything in inflation that is linear is there anything about it that seems to be uh tried and true at this point the way it's measured gives like the the indication that it's linear almost and that's like a problem with reporting on inflation right, and right, how right. is it measured it's for the listeners well there's a variety from of the tip like, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh well there's something called the consumer price index and the federal reserve uses the core cpi to measure where it thinks inflation is. And, and it's kind of like a it's like a basket of goods and services and assets, asset prices that they weight differently based on what they think is important. Hmm. Sort of what what um what the average American will use on a regular basis. Yeah. And so you can slice and dice that up into very like you can exclude like um like energy use and other prices that move around a lot and are volatile. Mm-hmm. So you get more of like kind of where is like the center of mass, mm-hmm. I guess, for prices. So like where are relative prices going for the average person? So and well, just one other thing, Steve. You were mentioning uh, you've said this a couple times to us, but essentially, like we've seen generally about two percent or even under that for since two thousand eight inflation. Yep. Uh, but even that, say two percent, about half of that inflation is just rising rents or house prices or these sorts of things. Was that your contention? Right, yeah. Circling back to the yeah. rent being too damn high. Yes. So like they have they've had a general target at the Federal Reserve of two percent inflation. Mm-hmm. Not because there's anything really special about that number, but it's just where they have a long run average of what they assume is the non accelerating inflation rate mm-hmm. of unemployment. And that's where they believe it to be. Although they've been continually revising it down. Because we keep going closer and closer towards what they consider to be full employment, but we mm-hmm. just go past it, and yeah. there's still no inflation. Huh. Huh. So, non-accelerating. Uh, does that mean that after inflation reaches a certain point, it kind of snowballs? Yeah, that's the idea of it. Okay. So there will be like, uh, yeah, it's kind of like the way the way inflation is reported and the way it's kind of discussed by by economists, even in the public realm, it's like this linear thing like a trade-off, mm-hmm. but they're, you see that they're trying to take into account some dynamic effects because mm-hmm. they say that there will be like a feedback effect where if you leave it beyond 2%, it'll snowball, like you said. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, again, circling back to the rent being too damn high, uh, so inflation has only been 2%, and, but, um, and from what I understand, um, included... It just hit 2.1. It just hit 2.1. Yeah, after years of trying to get there. So. <laughs> and included in the um, consumer price index are the prices of um, housing, the prices of health care, mm-hmm. and uh, the prices of education. Notoriously cheap in the United States. Notoriously <laughs> cheap. So 
those are all very obviously increasing housing probably being the high the fastest increasing mm-hmm. um how is how does that square with the historically low levels of inflation well so you have like consumer goods and services in the mm-hmm. cpi if you if you exclude the three categories you mentioned mm-hmm. it's closer to about like 1.3 or 1.4 percent inflation right now okay which is huge right yeah. right because i mean it's taking uh if they were if they're talking about volatile prices, uh-huh. like they exclude energy a lot of times, they get the core measure. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they also excluded those three things, we're, I mean, still arguably in deflationary environment. Hmm. Yeah. And so that, that essentially means that uh, really the consumer prices are more or less staying the same. And what's happening is that a greater uh, proportion of our paycheck, even if our paycheck were pinned to inflation, mm-hmm. like of all the um, consumer goods, or of all of the things that we spend money on, just a greater and greater fraction of it is going into housing, education, and healthcare. Yeah. And like with housing, like another another distinction that kind of gets lost in talking about CPI mm-hmm. is like that between um, asset values and the price of consumer goods and services. Right. So like with consumer goods and services, you know, when the price goes up, you typically want less of it. But with an asset, you want more of it. Right, so because there's a lot of investment in yeah, these yeah, things, yeah. They flip become this house good. and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so like housing is is one of those things. So the, the yeah. cost of it is going up. So what happens is then there's kind of a rush on the market from, um, from basically people with money, uh, investors in housing to buy as much of it as they can, which you know props the, excuse me, price up more, and the result is that housing. Uh, but then what happens downstream is that it just ends up raising rents in order for the investors to mm-hmm. get returns on their investments. Exactly. And so it just becomes kind of its own snowball effect, uh, but it's separate from uh, more standard consumer goods like your Nintendo or what have you. Yeah. So one of the one of the MMT sort of takeaways from getting more into like the dynamics of inflation mm-hmm. is like the, the Federal Reserve's primary mechanism that they believe can control inflation is by raising interest rates mm-hmm. in order to make it relatively more expensive they think to finance investment and whatnot and try to like cool things down but mmt is saying like this is all dynamic if you have under certain initial conditions raising the interest rate very well could overheat things oh. so like right now for instance hmm. oh because because wh- like consumer goods are basically flat but certain assets are inflating and people have uh, they're raising rates, which uh, makes bonds relatively more um, valuable per se for like medium and long-term investing than the stock market. Mm-hmm. Cause there's like an inverse trade off between bonds and stocks. Right. Right. So you could very well inflate them further by increasing the interest rate because people are still willing to buy into inflating house values. Right. Uh, okay. They, like they're willing, their um, risk appetite has changed because they they have different expectations now. Would it also lead to um, more investment in like housing securities since the interest rates on those would be going up as well? Uh, on on, on housing securities like loan mortgages and that sort of thing. Well, we brought Sean brought up rental backed securities a while ago. Right. So those like, are a thing now, and rents generally, like newer. So there's a bit of a, a construction boom emerging again after a while. 
And newer housing stock generally goes to richer people, mm-hmm. whereas right. we all, every, <laughs> three of the members of this pod get the <laughs> get the the old stock, the hand me downs. Right, mm-hmm. right. So, but eventually, though, if there's enough of a boom in housing that still reaches, um, you know, rents for the rest of us. So actually, in a way, if the Federal Reserve was really serious about fighting inflation and had like a better theory of it, mm-hmm. they should be using rent control. Because mm-hmm. rent control would be a much more effective way to fight inflation, right? Because then that would help the kind of uh, investment gold rush, right? On, yeah. <laughs> on housing, right? So it's very counterintuitive, but only if you're like schooled in the you know the Nehru Phillips curve you know story, right? Right? Because if you're on like Reddit's neoliberal, uh, our neoliberal, they'll tell you that it's all supply and demand, and that uh, rent control decreases supply and so then that increases prices andy and that you sound like a racist nimby (laughs) (laughs) who hates the global poor i just want the listeners to know that i thought this episode was going to be about helium yeah uh, um but yeah no i mean it is a complicated topic it's actually gonna be about the early universe um okay sorry we can't get to all of it we'll talk about inflation all right yeah yeah in but the cosmic microwave Jules Jorn found helium 150 years ago in France, and there is a shortage, but the shortage is actually how much we're allocated to use per cycle. Most helium is used for MRI scans and welding, and balloons don't really matter. So, Oh, is that for making superconductors and the magnets? Listen, this episode's not about helium. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It could be, though. It is. Yeah, that's... A, oh, oh, nice, nice. <laughs> I thought it was for, like, mostly used for doing silly voices when recording <laughs> podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Um, we have open source software for that now. <laughs> it's it's created a real demand. Uh, <laughs> it's what saved the helium shortage. <laughs> That's why all those uh, helium manufacturers committed suicide in mass. <laughs> you, you notice how? So you notice how all of the monetarist discussion we've had was basically like presupposing that fiscal policy, that is federal spending and taxation, mm-hmm, yeah. is somehow impotent to the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's like a general turn away from fiscal policy towards monetary policy to control things. Right. Well, there's also the political question, which is like Congress, gridlock, all that bullshit. Yeah. That, Whereas yeah, like it's kind factor. of been outsourced to the Federal Reserve entirely. Yep. So then why can't we just print a bunch of money? Like, uh, why can't why the can't pizzerias we? just I mean, make we, a whole bunch of pizzas, you know? We did essentially. Like quantitative easing in uh, the 2008 financial crisis, they printed or created whatever you want to call it, something like four. strokes. Four and a half trillion, and then they lent another seven or eight trillion through the discount window, the low interest rate loans that banks get access to. Um, so, I mean, it's like, and then uh, people argue this didn't create inflation because essentially the banks kept it on their balance sheets mostly, but essentially we did print trillions of dollars with no visible inflation. But let's get back at the task at hand, though. How does this benefit billionaires the most? I mean, I know that uh, mm-hmm. we've been talking about money yeah. this entire time, but mm-hmm. uh, I do want to get down to brass tacks on... Oh, so yeah. I, I want to address something. So actually, so people often talk about the distinction between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, saying the Federal Reserve doesn't print money. But essentially, if you look at it, um, I'm realizing now that when people talk about the Federal Reserve creating money, essentially by selling a U.S. bond, that bond is guaranteed to be bought for a specific amount of money. Mm-hmm. And so even mm-hmm. if it's not physical dollars that bond is money that was created out of thin air and then put into the United States. Uh, yeah. This ties into Yogi's questions about like why, like fundamentally what, how are billionaires, where are they getting out of this? Right. So the federal reserve and the treasury are working together to implement monetary policy. 
And what the main one of the main ways they do that is by buying and selling treasury securities on the open market called open open market operations. Mm-hmm. And that works closely in junction, conjunction with the board of governors at the Federal Reserve who decide what their interest rate policy is going to be. Mm-hmm. So kind of a combination of, of them just simply stating each month where they think interest rates should go. Mm-hmm. And then the open market people accommodating that target rate mm-hmm. by clearing up the market for treasury securities makes it so you have a stable that keeps upward pressure on interest rates to be wherever they need it to be to hit their target. So what does that mean for billionaires and and rich people generally? Right. Uh, it's basically saying like whatever cash, whatever cash billionaires and millionaires uh, have socked away and they don't know what to do with it for whatever reason, mm-hmm. they have an almost cash equivalent, they call it, in the form of treasury securities. So it's versically they they call it the risk free rate of return sometimes right. whatever um, like the one through five year treasury security would be because there's I mean for them for any of us really it's essentially like if you have so you have your checking account and you have your treasury account moving more money from your treasury account to treasury securities is essentially like moving money from your checking account to your savings account. Would gotcha. you would you call yourself suddenly richer per se right when you do that? No, but over time you earn the stable interest rate oh. for no risk. Okay, yeah. So for billionaires who have enough money to live off of only capital gains, it just makes it that much easier for them to gotcha. do that. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, so I have two questions for you, Steve, and then uh, we can move on unless you two want to jump in. But first of all. At the MMT conference, did you see anybody get really fucked up? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Because. Not naming names, but yeah, yeah, sure. I had the image in my head of somebody like tripping at the MMT conference and seeing hundreds of <laughs> printing presses going all at once. <laughs> and yeah. uh, what booth had the booth, babes? <laughs> 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 I really hope one person thought it was the DMT convention and just really missed the boat on it all of like, the things. They oh just God. came in and they're like, oh, man. <laughs> Money is just an item <laughs> for debt. It's, I'm, my wall is full of IOUs. I'm going to die. The second international DMT conference. <laughs> there was like a snafu there. Like, Steve's that was like wondering, like, Steve's standing there like, why is Joe Rogan a keynote speaker here? Why <laughs> are talking uh, about chakras at this MMT event? <laughs> But no, man, so in it, quantum mechanics, you know, it's shown that, like, you really can't have money and have money at the same time. <laughs> so when I was smoking weed with Musk. <laughs> um, and then just the other thing I wanted to address, like, very briefly, because I know this is we've gone a little long here. But essentially, um, we've kind of addressed, like, the, uh, the right-wing uh, framing of uh, why MMT is bad, which is usually involves Venezuela or Zimbabwe or hyperinflation or all that. But I did just want to kind of briefly um, mention uh, socialist critiques of MMT because MMT has become uh, very prominent uh, among socialists and mm-hmm. to a lesser extent liberals and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Matt Brunig is an economist that, uh, that I enjoy and I read his work at the People's uh, the People's Policy Project, but basically, uh, he deletes all his tweets. But he did have two <laughs> tweets. He deletes all his tweets because he got fired for tweeting, which really? is an understandable yeah. reason. Uh, he called Nira Tandon a scumbag, and yeah, then he got he fired. He used to work in the Beltway. Yes, and he kind of burned his bridges there. Oh, wow. The uh, yes, we've talked about money. So if you're wondering uh, why you would install a tweet deleting program, it involves losing a hundred thousand dollar a year think tank job. <laughs> 
Um, but yes, so uh, Matt Brunig of the People's Policy Project is a, a socialist. He is a socialist economist. And his whole thing is like he talks a lot about the uh, Swedish model or the um, Nordic model. And essentially he's good sa- models. Right. He says high taxes and social welfare states, sovereign wealth funds, these sorts mm-hmm. of things. But he's, he's voiced some critiques of MMT. So I just want it to kind of from the left because MMT is relevant to, to socialists. Uh, just give you these. So basically, here's two of them. He, uh, Bruning says, quote, put more bluntly, a lot of MMT fans on Twitter think that the theory says that the government can get a bunch more purchasing power than it currently has. Would you say that's an unfair reading or purchasing power? Yeah, I mean, essentially just like a bunch more money than is currently available. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's... He should know better than to say that since he says that he um, right. constantly is uh, reading, looking up MMT stuff online. Right. But, I mean, we can. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of fiscal policy space that is underutilized for, certainly for leftist causes. Mm-hmm. Um, Democrats, liberals, and, and even socialists, when they do their economic policy work, they're just playing in a small corner of what's possible, basically. Right. And, and, they're, and they're politically, they're linking the question of, we want to tax rich people, mm-hmm. which is good. And, and with the other question of, we want to pay for shit. Yes. But there's no operational link between the two. Right. right. And I would argue it's politically inadvisable to do that, can you, to can link you, them. Can uh, you explain why there isn't a link? Because I think in, um, in the popular understanding of it, uh, the idea is that, you know, it's it's uh, basically the idea that taxes fund the government, you know, money in, mm-hmm. money out. Yep. And um, so I, I guess the, the question is then, like, uh, why isn't the deficit so bad? The deficit is not bad because it if you look at it from an accounting sense, every federal de- budget deficit is logically a non-government private surplus. Mm-hmm. So... Can that be inflationary? Sure, for the reasons that we already mentioned. Like if you're at full employment, if you all of your factories are running and everything, yeah, if you keep spending beyond that, it could be inflationary. So what Bruni is kind of implying is that like, oh, people, people, MMT fans say you can just keep printing money and nothing will happen. No, we do think budget... Uh, I feel, Deficits or we but we do think budget deficits and the national debt can eventually be a problem under certain circumstances. So inflation can happen if you're printing money that doesn't that doesn't do anything. But if, if the it, money can well, do something, then there won't you won't be likely to see inflation. In other words, like if you don't have full employment, there's and there's underutilized production that needs just money redirected to it, and that can be accomplished by printing money. That won't necessarily be inflation causing. But it, if you just can't you know, dig any more minerals out of the ground or farm any more wheat. If you, yeah. If you have, know. if you have, so like what we're kind of framing here is like the idea of too much, too much money chasing too few goods. Yes. And so if there is still capacity to create, to do useful stuff and provide useful things for people, mm-hmm. then in theory, that is still not inflationary. So wherever the budget deficit basically needs to be in order to accommodate full employment, mm-hmm. MMTers often say that's where it should be. Mm-hmm. It's not like there's like, oh, uh, the national debt hit 200% of GDP. That's bad. MMTers would be like, can you explain why that's bad? Why yeah. is that number 
in particular so so rough mm-hmm. and the MMTers have a framework that tells them that like it's not so much where the debt or the national deficit uh lies that's the problem it's like what what are we doing with the deficit right so are we doing useful stuff with it or are we like bombing yemen Mm-hmm. Right. Like you can have those questions, basically. I have realized Nira Tandon does have a chance to rebrand and say that she got him fired because of his opposition to <laughs> MMT. <laughs> um, oh, and then, like, we mentioned the right wing, but uh, I'm paraphrasing this other Matt Brunig uh, Twitter quote, but he basically says, how come MMT didn't work for Venezuela? Which, again, a very socialist <laughs> critique. If there ever was one, so he literally Venezuela'd us. Right. <laughs> that's like uh, that's like an indicator that he's not even really a socialist, actually. Right. Yeah. No, I mean it's the same uh, argument known used by uh, noted socialist Charlie Kirk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. He also said worker-owned cooperatives are utopian. Uh, yeah. And there was a lot of hand wringing to make that statement true. Oh. But man, that was. So I don't know. I mean, to. To me, like... You should get him fired from the People's Policy uh, <laughs> Project. <laughs> his People's Policy Project, I was initially really intrigued, and in fact, I was I was actually donating some money to them for a while. Yeah, I am too. I'm but still I, donating I, on Patreon, I think. Uh, I can't see how I could bring myself to do that anymore based on the way he treats MMTers. You're not down <laughs> with PPP? Not anymore, because like... Well, like, well, one, because of his behavior, and then two, because it's not... He's not in a paradigm... He can't talk about money, basically. So like all of I, I don't even know how you can effectively advocate for socialist policies unless you understand how money works and how you understand modern monetary theory. The answer was yeah, you know me. But uh, let's move on. He did call Marx a scumbag, though. <laughs> <laughs> Marx was uh, a scumbag. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and uh, like uh, so, I want to move on to this Vanity Fair uh, article excerpt series. But uh, it should just wait. Wait first, let's stop on Venezuela. So what's the Venezuela situation? Right, right. Here? That I was gonna say yeah. So the Venezuela thing is. And then MMT perfectly incorporates Venezuela, which is why it's kind of a ridiculous argument for uh, Mr. Brunig to make. But uh, Venezuela had about $50 billion in a uh, uh, non-domestic currency denominated debt. So they essentially uh, need, they couldn't create their own currency in, the, in this case. So it wasn't really modern fiat currency uh, conditions and also about 95% of Venezuela's exports were oil. So of course in 2014 when the price of oil collapsed, this is what really set off the inflation and later hyperinflation in Venezuela. But again, like everything Steve and other MMTers have told us here, it perfectly incorporates that scenario. So it's it's just kind of ridiculous for him to bring it up. Yeah, I mean they have foreign denominated debts like many South American countries have had at various times like Argentina right mm-hmm. now. Um they can't I mean, if you have those debts, you have to go out and find the other currency. You can't just print it, obviously. Right, right, right. And obtain it and then pay back creditors. Oh, so that's why America's debt isn't um, as uh, vulnerable because basically America has positioned the dollar to be a kind of international currency and therefore is able to denote its debts in dollars even when they're bought by foreign governments. Uh, Mm, Is that... That's part. That could be part of like our monetary sovereignty strategy, if you want, to a degree. But being able to quote do MMT stuff does mm-hmm. isn't um, uh, it isn't incumbent on you know you having the world reserve currency or something. Right, right. But I guess the your uh, the debts that you take out, um, the 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 more stable ones need would they need to be in your own currency? 
or in order to have control over like how they're how they're used in an MMT sense. Or yeah, I guess can you do modern monetary theory type policies using foreign debts? Uh, I don't know how to answer that exactly. Um, I mean, okay. I wouldn't think so because essentially the entire idea of modern monetary policy is you have fiat currency that is not constricted it's by the your, supply by of taking gold on or the supply the of MM, dollars. Like the MMT like explanation of that, I guess, would be by taking on foreign denominated debts, you're imposing a future constraint on your spending capacity that okay. wasn't there before. Okay. So, like, if you if you you're you've reduced your sovereignty, I guess, basically by by taking on those debts. Okay. It's so like in addition, if you're Venezuela, like in addition to dealing with all of these um, investment and like structural problems, mm-hmm. now you have to pay back all of these foreign banks and whatnot in U.S. dollars or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, we're lucky that just by chance, um, all oil is traded in U.S. dollars. And any country that tries to change that to euros uh, got invaded in 2003. Andy. We're very lucky. American troops died for that. So I will not hear you (laughs) mock it. Um, But yes, and one other note on Venezuela is that the BBC, for their part, predicted that inflation would reach a million percent per year by the end of this year. That's a lot of percent. Which, if I hadn't read it on the BBC, I would have been like, this is just a boomer Facebook name, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're just making shit up. But um, unfortunately, yeah, Boomer Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, Boomer lives. But we hope we've been able to enlighten you a bit about modern monetary theory. We will uh, certainly continue uh, discussing it. Obviously, it's a big topic. We couldn't get to everything. But uh, please hit us up on Twitter and everywhere else, and uh, we'll answer questions. Uh, or Steve will. He knows. Uh, we'll answer questions and continue talking about it later. But I did just want tweet to uh, Stephen's Twitter account that does not exist. <laughs> no, I have one. Oh, you have one now. I forget what the handle is, though. <laughs> it's at Matt Brunig. <laughs> <laughs> Brunig fan 99. <laughs> um, but so I did just want to uh, uh, briefly read you a little bit about what uh, gave me a huge headache at work today when I was reading this instead of doing my job. Uh, William D. Cohen, who we quoted um, a bit from his Goldman Sachs biography. Also, on David Graeber, um, please come on and talk about your new book, Bullshit Jobs. That's very good. You added him, right? And he didn't respond? or Yeah, I added him. He retweeted me promoting his book, and then he didn't respond to me saying, hey, come on our podcast. He motherfucked you. I know. <laughs> Asshole. Come on our podcast, asshole. He's like, well, I would, but uh, I don't go on any podcast where uh, one of them argues with Matt Brunig. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so William Cohen, he wrote this book about Goldman Sachs, and I just want to read you uh, three different headlines that he has written for Vanity Fair this year. These are all about the new Goldman Sachs CEO as of yesterday, October 1st, 2018, the new CEO, David Solomon. Uh, Three headlines, all from William D. Cohen in uh, Vanity Fair. Uh, First one, the next Goldman CEO is one woke dude, March 2018. Can David Solomon, woke DJ, and Blank Finds Air remake Goldman for the age of Trump, July 2018? And then this one uh, from November 2018 is a long piece, and it's, you can't out Lloyd Lloyd at Goldman Sachs. The David Solomon era begins with a subtle but significant changes, and then the... uh, Subheader is, as Solomon succeeds legendary risk titan Lloyd Blankfein, he faces a slew of challenges, how to sort through the regulatory minefield, pivot to commercial bankings, and maybe even make Goldman a little more woke in the process. Well, it's great that only state-run media is propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, those three headlines you have just heard are the problem with access journalism. <laughs> because uh, for uh, all of the... Uh, basically, to get these people to talk about themselves... It's you not have just to, ac- Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, to get these people to talk about themselves, you have to write about how one of the most horrific criminal organizations in the known world is woke. <laughs> and it's not just access journalism. It's, it's the fact that those stories get published in the first place, which is that, you know, when you have the companies buying the ads, they're going to get preferential treatment. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with uh, election campaigns, which are, you know, kind of relevant right now, which is one thing I heard um, from someone kind of familiar with Jeff Weaver is that, uh, of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that, like, one of the iffy things he did was he bought television commercials, even though... Uh, it's there have been numerous studies showing that television commercials don't sway voters. And the reasoning was, uh, which was explicitly corrupt, um, or, but I guess based on ex- an explicitly corrupt reading of the system, is that if you buy commercials, uh, you're going to get more favorable coverage because basically you're paying their bills. Oh, and interesting. So huh. that's, that makes sense. That also explains why, you know, third party candidates or more marginal candidates don't get any coverage because, right, you know, they're, right. not, they're not paying keeping the lights on at Fox and mm-hmm. CNN. Well, uh, Goldman Sachs. And uh, uh, so I just want to uh, uh, do a few little quotes from the uh, most recent profile here. You can't out Lloyd Lloyd, which uh, refers to Lloyd Blankfein. Um, his, uh, the, the outgoing uh, CEO of Goldman Sachs, who's a notorious uh, risk taker, who's, of course, worth $1.1 billion um, entirely through state capitalism, which is that Lloyd Blankfein got these uh, massive uh, bailouts from his uh, the former Goldman CEO before him, Hank Paulson. We talked about this in the last episode. So one other fun quote. He says, uh, Blankfein steered the firm masterfully through the 2008 financial crisis, which, again, unacknowledged in that is that Blankfein benefited from state capitalism. <laughs> they became a bank in like two weeks. Yes. Um, but so, uh, uh, Blankfein is a billionaire. We'll talk about him on a future episode. He did perjury before the Senate by saying that Goldman didn't bet against the housing market, which they very much did. He's been involved in LIBOR, mortgage-backed securities fraud, all these sorts of things. And then now this new guy coming in, David Solomon, is going to be woke. And I just want a uh, couple quick ap- excerpts. But basically, Solomon got his start at Drexel under Michael Milken, who would later go to prison as the junk bond king. He uh, served two years in prison. Uh, David Solomon was there from 86 to 1990 and, of course, left when Michael Milken pled guilty, paid half a billion dollars in fines, and then the firm went under. And so it's interesting where it's like in this Vanity Fair profile, Michael Milken's uh, tutelage is all about his hard work. And then they <laughs> devote like one obligatory sentence to his uh, prison conviction. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, even today, David Solomon is friendly with uh, Milken. And uh, Solomon says, you see him today, you go to his office and there are papers everywhere that he's read and marked up. He's got an incredible ability to digest information and then synthesize it and communicate around it. Uh, and I just like the idea of him going there. So and he can s- read. Yeah. <laughs> He's like got books everywhere. It's like, yeah, I learned to do this in prison. <laughs> wow. Um, but so basically, Michael Milken, another billionaire who is trying to get Donald Trump to pardon him. So we will talk about him at a uh, future episode. 
Um, but so, and then this profile goes on. He says that uh, love it or hate it, Goldman Sachs has always displayed a knack for finding the right man at the right time to lead the firm. And then it mentions uh, John, uh, Steve Friedman, later a national economic advisor, John Corzine, later a governor and senator, and Hank Paulson, who rescued the firm twice, first as a rainmaker and then as a treasury secretary during the financial crisis in 2008. Each of them found ways for Goldman to make more and more money regardless of the prevailing uh, market conditions. And again, I think the the way that they made money there is uh, by capturing the government <laughs> and using the printing press to inject money directly into their Regulatory firm. Regulatory capture is bad, yeah. fam. And it's like it's just funny where he just lists all of these Goldman execs who are in and out of government, and then was like, definitely don't read more into this sentence <laughs> than what I have just given you. Um, and then we have like a fun story where David Solomon woke Bay. Uh, goes and meets with uh, Mohammed bin Salman al-Saud, the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who is currently carrying out a genocide in Yemen, which is also not acknowledged or mentioned. Um, uh, he goes, and uh, Solomon and MBS had 40 minutes together. He's extremely impressive, Solomon says. He's got a lot of energy. He's passionate about what he's doing. Starving children in Yemen. <laughs> Uh, he's very, very literally strafing farmers <laughs> and bombing fishermen. <laughs> and these he's, are these are the people who tell us to worry about inflation. Right, yeah. right. He's he he learned from Michael Milken to wake up at three a.m. every day and get the latest body counts from the cluster munitions he is dropping on uh, uh, farm workers. Um, oh, yeah, Solomon goes on. MBS is very, very engaged in what he's trying to accomplish, and he's trying to change his country, which has an impact on the world for the better. Um, and uh, he just kind of goes on with this kind of uh, bromides. And uh, he says, the day before we met in his office, Solomon was in uh, Jeddah in Saudi Arabia in a meeting with top Saudi ministers to hear how they intended to meet the 2030 goals, which is Saudi Arabia is supposedly transitioning away from oil and all that. Uh, Solomon says, the ministers are very compelling in the story that they articulate, he emailed blank fine after, uh, as he headed home on the company's private jet, but you've got to execute, and the execution's going to be hard. Wow. It's also going to be the crucifixion of a gay man. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm not sure the execution is the term you want to use in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) You've got to execute the Shia cleric (laughs) in order to provoke regional crisis with Iran. You've got to execute the woman who looked at a man without a veil over her face. <laughs> and then, like, uh, I guess just, like, the uh, two last things we get to is that uh, he says uh, he has one paragraph about diversity. So uh, another of his major priorities as CEO, Solomon says, is to attract more women and people of color to Goldman. While we have made progress in recent years on women's representation and ethnic and racial diversity, there is still significant progress to be made, Blank Fine and Solomon wrote in a March memo. Uh, But some who understand the dynamics of the firm doubt that Solomon really cares about diversifying the mix at Goldman. Don't believe any of that, one former board member recently told a friend. It's all window dressing. And this is in the Vanity Fair article where he has spent three articles calling this guy woke. So it's like, why not adjust your fucking headline <laughs> if the only quote about diversity you can get is a former board member being like, yeah, it's all bullshit. I mean, he's probably got like a yin and yang tattoo. Uh, but yes, it's... Uh, 
Uh, and then just like the other last thing about new Goldman CEO, uh, D-Soul, is he is a DJ under the name DJ D-Soul. And he recently uh, released a remix to Fleetwood Mac's Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow, which has several thousand, hundred thousand hits on YouTube. Uh, according to the Vanity Fair, it debuted at number 39 on the Billboard Dance Mix charts. Uh, better than the original for sure, one listener raved on YouTube. Wow. Where the thumbs up outpaced these thumbs down 10 to 1. And uh, if you're uh, wondering if debuting on the Billboard Dance Mix chart is based on merit, I have some <laughs> news for you. And the song itself is like not interesting or good or in any way. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and it, but it's like, where does this woke idea come from? And also, the entire concept of wokeness is so meaningless if a corporation is able to rebrand as woke while uh, funding uh, dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, genocidal dictatorships, funding weapons manufacturing, funding global warming, and, uh, and of course, the massive foreclosure fraud that right. was at the center of Goldman's government bailout that has made Lloyd Blank find a millionaire. It's a completely meaningless story, and uh, I'm sure his DJ set fucking sucks, too. Oh, and uh, the last, just most horrifying quote from this, and uh, uh, just, like, put this in perspective as any sort of, if you happen to be an artist or a creative person or even just with empathy for them, uh, here's what uh, Solomon takes away from his DJ set. Uh, in typical fashion, Solomon draws a management lesson from his nightlife being a DJ. Whereas corporate executives used to be, quote, aloof and disconnected in their ivory tower, modern managers need to be willing to be a, lit more, a bit more vulnerable and exposed. It makes us more human and therefore better leaders. So if you're wondering why you should DJ, it is because it is essential. <laughs> it is essential to uh, running a modern criminal enterprise a that has captured the government in the United States and has CEOs and prospective CEOs such as Gary Cohn going in and out of government, passing tax reform that completely benefits Goldman, passing bailouts that benefit Goldman, uh, foreclosing on people, selling fraudulent mortgage-backed securities, doing LIBOR manipulation, helping the Greek government cook their books. All of this paying $8 billion in fines with nobody going to prison. All of this is just what you need if you want this kind of DJ skill. <laughs> and this is why Avicii killed himself. <laughs> this is the reason. The billionaires have taken over the DJ scene. EDM is dead. Avicii didn't kill himself. He was murdered by this guy. He was like... If I want to move up 10 spaces on the Billboard charts, Avicii's got to go. Oh, and that's the sad reality that is capitalism in a modern-day world. Oh, God. Well, anyways, uh, this has been Grubstakers. We hope you've learned all about MMT. Uh, we hope you won't stop thinking about tomorrow. And uh, the new woke CEO of Goldman Sachs, David Solomon. But don't think too board. hard about tomorrow <laughs> if this is any indication of what it'll be like. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, Sean P. McCarthy here uh, signing off. Uh, any other final thoughts before we leave, gentlemen? I think that's everything. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. My name is Yogi Pollywell. I'm Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffers. The last thing he said to Avicii was, Do you think you're better off in hell? <laughs> <laughs>